SETI, The Journey, Book 2 of the SETI Trilogy. Proem Perhaps it was the particular time of year, or the tidal pull of the moons. The best scientific brains could not decide which, but the moment of replenishment and rejuvenation was at hand. It had always occurred only on one night, on a very predictable date. The surface pods were swollen with the building blocks of new life. The engorged, transparent capsules were ready to float upward and blasted away from small mound clusters into the sea of thick atmosphere. Then, not unlike the reproduction cycle of Earth coral, countless numbers of buoyant miniature globes exploded from their tubular launching pads. They floated upward and danced gently into a magenta sky, graduating from thick air density at ground level to thin air in the upper atmosphere layers. Fireflies of life reached from the ground level up to the planetary jet streams tens of thousands of feet above the surface. It was a time for celebration on the planet. Many feasts around the globe that circled the star known as Tau Ceti would occur that night, and as dawn approached, a quiet crept over that planet. No creature would fail to recognize that the seeds of new life were about to fall on the planet to fertilize the very ground they stood, crawled, slinked, hopped on or flew over. The planet was alive, and the creatures understood that it was their host and life. The glistening capsules now rose more quickly from the planet's surface, near the Terminator, at that precise instant of illumination and heating by the Tau Ceti sun. The pods burst open. A display of rainbow-colored biological fireworks showered the planet's surface. The precious spores encased in the capsules began to float downward to the planet. A fragile mat of biological gauze spread over the entire planet's surface and immediately sank below the thin crust. Dissimilar chromosomes sought out one another to renew and build and strengthen the surface. Regions of the planet where climactic conditions were severe enough and the natural failure rate high enough would not suppress the process of conception. But that night, the process would mutate. A fault developed. A mistake. Microscopic genic structures altered negatively. That anomaly made it all the more necessary that the planetary search for other signs of civilized intelligence be reactivated immediately. It was essential for the survival of the planet. The only question was whether the answers required or help sought from the other worlds would be forthcoming, voluntarily, or would be plundered. Chapter 1 Sam Alexander often went to the New England Aquarium just to think. It was his escape valve. There, the pressures of daily life as a new student at Harvard and running his own small software company would evaporate amongst the colorful and graceful creatures of that confined underwater world. He took a deep breath of chilly autumn air and watched the steam shoot out of his mouth as he picked up a brisk pace along Waterfront Park. 
Boston was quiet early on a Saturday morning. The skyline behind him was edged sharp against the royal blue sky. An unusual dusting of dry snow covered the sidewalks on this December the 3rd. He almost slipped on an ice patch as he stepped off the curb onto the side street that led past the Long Wharf Hotel and toward the entrance of one of the country's most famous aquariums. Sam shivered and tried to shake off a cold blast of air that hit him as it blew across Boston Harbor. Sam was a California native and never got used to the cold. The cold and dark winters were different and interesting, but not particularly enjoyable, especially for long periods of time. To be able to journey to snow-covered Big Bear Lake overlooking the Los Angeles Basin and play in the snow, roll and slide, and generally act silly in the wind-driven snow piles was tolerable. Sam always knew that within 30 or 40 minutes, he would be at lower elevations in Los Angeles, heading towards Escondido, where it would be warm once again. Those thoughts flashed through in a way as Sam concentrated on the entrance to the contemporary aquarium building. He pulled open the heavy glass doors and was immediately hit with a warm blast of humid and pungent air. The sounds of squawking, squeaking, penguins echoed and reverberated off the concrete walls. The frigid, sterile winter outside contrasted sharply with the wet and alive world inside. Sam stood inside the vestibule as he removed his gloves and stuffed them into the vest pocket of his down parka. He gazed upward at the towering central tank. He looked around the cavernous aquarium structure at the grottos and viewing platforms and heard the echoing shriek of an excited child as she got her first look at a clownfish or more ray eel or a menacing shark forever circling the main tank. Sam smiled and took a deep breath of heavy air. He was back in his quiet synthetic ocean world where he could muse on the beautiful and alien creatures of the sea integrating his thoughts, considering problems, and their solutions. Sam's contemplative solitary routine would then continue to Van Pier, Charleston, Old Ironside shopping at Filene's basement in Faneuil Hall, and maybe ending the day at some small Italian restaurant in the North End. Sam reached into his pocket and pulled out a crumpled $10 bill. The young girl behind the ticket counter mechanically reached for the bill without looking up. Seven dollars, please, she said coolly. Thank you, Sam replied as he grabbed his change. But as he did, she looked up and was mesmerized by Sam's penetrating green eyes. He stared directly at her. He had learned over the last several years that he'd used his eyes to his advantage. Girls usually responded with a second look, though he had once been slapped in the face from a lengthy and intrusive stare. He tried to tear away the three-dollar bills the girl was holding. She didn't let go. He smiled and she stared. Thank you, he said, a bit more firmly. He gently jerked the money from her grip. You're welcome, she said softly. Sam strolled past the counter and directly toward the penguin tray. He stopped only a moment to watch the ungainly birds waddle from side to side, stopping only to squawk and preen their coal-black feathers. 
Sam was amazed how differently they looked in the water as they glided and flew through the murky green pool with grace in comparison to their on-land awkwardness. Sam marveled how such beautifully designed creatures, such as the rockhopper penguins, with their flash of stiff yellow feathers shooting out of their heads, could instantly seem out of place once they crossed the boundary from the water world to the air world. As Sam continued up the ramp encircling the dominating central large tank, his attention alternated between the large, giant ocean tank on his right to the special, smaller exhibits on his left. He pressed his face close to the large viewing windows of the tank and stared upward to the top. Various levels of the central tank revealed creatures staking out several routes for their own species. Those groups cleaved to their own kind, nudging each other occasionally, just to make sure a close relative was nearby. The sharks, of course, appeared to swim alone. He was nearly at the top of the tank. Sam stared down to the bottom of the tank, then back to the shimmering lights filtering through the top layer of the tank. He was amazed how many different species of sea creatures could swim in seemingly relative harmony in such a confined area. Creatures of all types, from large groupers to moray eels, the spine-covered balloon fish, sea turtles, and the silent stalkers, sharks, passed and swam in harmony with each other in an endless parade. Around and around they swam the simulated ocean floor and reefs, The giant 180,000-gallon tank looked so small for such a large number of animals. It was a miracle, Sam thought, how they didn't eat each other alive. Sam again leaned closer to the several-inch-thick glass. All of these creatures, hey, are you dumb or smart? Where else in the universe do you live? Sam half-whispered, half-spoke. He self-consciously looked around. He usually did not talk to himself so loudly. He thought he saw someone nearby, only for a fleeting moment. Sam sighed and turned his attention to the tank again. He leaned still closer to the three-and-three-quarter-inch glass. It was probably the shadow of a passing shark. And then, within inches of his nose, a great white shark passed directly in front of the glass and rolled his black, lifeless eyes back at Sam. The great hunter flipped his powerful tail and moved away. Sam jumped back and snorted, trying to regain composure and slow down the sudden racing of his heart. Damn, Sam said quietly. He moved back to the cold wall of the giant tank. He was tranquilized by the monotonous dance of sea creatures in constant motion around the center reef. He was jolted out of his reverie. Sam swung his head quickly to the right. He felt eyes on him again. Perhaps it was his friend, the gray and black great white shark, circling the tank, focused only at Sam with his black rock eyes. Sam walked to the top of the rim viewing level of the tank and noticed he was the lone visitor. He grabbed the rail and leaned over the rim and saw wondrous creatures continuing to swim endlessly, around the endless core of the tank. 
Some of the sea creatures he saw earlier at the lower levels of the tank now came to the top for a gulp of air. They then ducked down to their comfortable territory, staked out long ago. The shadow of his new friend, the great white shark, would rise and fall back to the depths. Sam straightened and looked at the tank perimeter again. He was about to pull away and leave when he saw the oval form of a large sea turtle begin to surface. It breached the water line and gulped air. As if with intelligence and purpose, it looked first at Sam and then at an aquarium diver suddenly surfacing from the depth. From the ancillary signage information on the aquarium walls, Sam knew the amphibian swimming close to the diver must have been Myrtle the turtle, the 500-pound and 30-year-old longtime resident of the aquarium. As the turtle swam near the diver, it refused a large piece of lettuce the diver had retrieved from a food bag hanging from his equipment belt. Instead, it nudged the diver several times with his large head. Myrtle swam in a circle with its large flippers, patted the diver on the back. The turtle then nudged the diver's hand. The diver understood, and Sam was just beginning to understand. The diver began to gently stroke the giant beast's head. The turtle stiffened and relaxed, mesmerized by the touch of the warm hand gently patting its head. Sam realized this was not part of some aquatic park training he was witnessing. It was genuine need for love and a human touch of love and kindness. This large amphibian, whose lineage stretched back farther than any human being, only wanted a warm caress. Maybe this scene lasted 30 seconds, maybe a minute, maybe longer. Sam wasn't sure. The sounds of the air blowers and gurgling water suspended time in that moment, in that magic moment. Sam did not move. He just watched as the gentle scene played out before his eyes. Sam suddenly reawakened, like a shot. He stood up straight. The same eyes that were on him before were on him again. He felt the strong presence of another intelligent being staring at him like he had never felt before. It was threatening, dangerous, and omnipotent. Was his mind and body being stripped and probed? While the diver continued to pet the turtle, Sam looked directly across the opposite side of the tank. In the cold, fluorescent light, he saw a man, perhaps in his thirties, leaning over the edge of the tank. The man was not looking at the turtle. He was focused on Sam. He was riveted on Sam. He continued his intense stare. Time and sound suspended. Sam tried to concentrate through a sudden dull haze. What was the man wearing? A black jumpsuit? Not unlike a military flying suit. Sam stared back. What a strange form of dress. Was he military? The man then continued his attention to the diver and Myrtle. Sam continued to look at the man. The man had intense features, Sam thought. Slicked back ebony hair, square-jawed, and cobalt-blue eyes. Sam wanted no more of this. He looked down at Myrtle as she quickly pulled away from the diver and suddenly sank into the water. 
Sam looked up again, and the man dressed in the black fight suit was gone. Sam wheeled around and looked at the entrance ramp behind him. He took five quick steps towards the sloping walkway. For only a brief second, he saw the man's figure, then a shadow far below. He was walking briskly towards the exit. Sam involuntarily shuddered. What the hell was all that about? he whispered. Chapter 2 The orbits of the 18 asteroids and steerable antenna systems nestled in the gaping hard rock valleys had deteriorated since their initial orbit placement many years ago. The transceiving equipment had been kept idle and suffered the consequences of non-use. One of the asteroids was even in danger of crashing through the Tosseti atmosphere within months. The system was shortly to be activated and immediate action was required. Again, debate rose about the wisdom of reactivating the search system and focusing it once again at the third planetesimal from the common and ordinary solar system at the far side of the galaxy. But the debate was truncated because of the urgency of the looming biological disaster that grew near each day. The future survival of the Tau Ceti planet was at stake, and the search would hopefully provide help to the global life-threatening problem. It necessitated action. Earth's resources could provide the solution to halt the threat of life's end on Tau Ceti. Some emboldened minds, such as dissenting councilman Clayton Perfect, thought radio contact was too weak and an impersonal a response. Immediate direct action and immediate direct contact with the on-site representative escort would be preferable. But the broad view taken by the majority prevailed. Perfect was overruled. His sycophant friend, Escort, now stationed on Earth, would have to remain silent for the time being. Escort's new clandestine orders from Perfect would come soon enough. The discussion concluded with rational dispatch. The original radio contact was successfully made through the use of antiquated electromagnetic radio transmission signals albeit through the use of advanced time-advanced signal processing, and now was no time to change. The conservative view dictated that the cultural shock of immediate physical contact with the Earth's masses by escort was not worth taking the risk. Escort would, therefore, have to remain an anonymous face in the crowd. The only completely unknown and wild factor in the decision to recontact planet Earth and its chosen representative Sam Alexander was Sam Alexander's reaction. The reasoning went that several Earth years had passed and Sam Alexander would be unpredictable in his behavior at the Tau Ceti request for help. How many others would he drag into the process and how many others had already taken control of him and the information left to him? On their last visit, the Tau Ceti Council majority decided that nothing more than a terse communication with Sam 
was necessary to see if his help would be forthcoming, voluntarily and with enthusiasm. The reconstruction of the equipment and asteroids' orbits began with new fervent purpose. Positioning of the asteroids was adjusted to target and track the solar system and the planetesimal Earth. The refurbished transmission gear was transported from the Tau Ceti surface using slave spacecraft. Eighteen separate teams began working at once on each of the 18 asteroids. The modulized equipment was assembled, secured, and tuned with one Tau Ceti day and was operational by the next. Commands were sent to the slave satellite unit hovering above Earth, and the entire system was online, fully tested, and operation within a second Tau Ceti day. The command to transmit the loop message was initiated in unison by all Tau Ceti Council members, so not one single individual would have the awesome responsibility for the transmission of the Earth-bound message. It was well understood what the ultimate consequences might mean for the population of the Tau Ceti planet to open themselves to intimate cultural examination by another infinitely more primitive cultural planet. Was it a step backwards? For civilization priding itself on its scientific ability and its constant search for extraterrestrial life in all of its many forms and guises, it was vanity that made it difficult to press the transmit button. The contact and request for help would either lead to salvation or disaster for both the Tau Ceti planet and the Earth. If Tau Ceti was considered weak and vulnerable by Earth, the planet could be then open to possible attack. Tau Cetians could not predict the mind of man, but to hesitate could pretend long-term extinction for all life on the Tau Ceti planetary surface. Initially, at the speed of light, then faster, the transmission jumped off the 18 strategically aimed Tau Ceti asteroid antennas. Now, the only hope was that the message would be quickly received. What the elite gathering on Tau Ceti's most high-governing group did not know was that Sam had not seen or touched the information contained on those disks. They did not know that the precious information was liberated from him after their delivery by their Tau Ceti craft in the southeastern California desert. Almost immediately after the signal had been sent, second-guessing began on the wisdom of sending such the request for help. The message in the bottle could be diverted by an even more powerful race of beings capable of conquering or destroying a vulnerable Tau Ceti. Then, of course, even the weaker and more feeble human race on planet Earth could pose a threat. Tau Ceti control and understanding of the universe and environment around them was vast and extensive. What they could not fathom or understand were the vagaries of human action and emotion. It was that human quality that gave them pause. Being able to predict behavior or reaction was critical to successful Tau Ceti interaction with alien species. But the humans' erratic behavior made them enigmatic. 
curious, and at times dangerous. It was those traits that intrigued the advanced race of humanoids. It was those qualities that perhaps made the outcome of their cry for help uncertain. But second-guessing vanished as the disturbing effects of the biological mutation became more evident. It made the current venture for recontact with Earth and Sam Alexander as all the more urgent and dangerous. The Tau Ceti race would pin their hopes on one solar system planet and their one representative, Sam Alexander.